0: Um, as we teach through different books of the Bible here, uh, I like to move um, to a different kind of literature as we complete one book of the Bible. And Oh yeah, the kids are just missed at Children's Church. Goodbye. Everyone. And as we start another one. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've been here. Like right. two weeks. I missed my pulpit. <laughs> But we do try to mix up the literature as we uh, transition from one book to another. I wouldn't want to follow one gospel with another gospel or one epistle with another epistle. Not that it would be wrong to do that, to follow Romans or 1 Corinthians, but having spent a year and a half teaching through Romans, um, I think it's good to move to a different style, mainly so that we can keep fresh in the great diversity of literature that's in the Bible. Typically, after a New Testament book, I like to do some Old Testament studies, and we have in the past taught through Exodus and uh, Isaiah and Ecclesiastes and had a lot of fun doing that. And while I was contemplating where to go, one of our younger folks suggested turning to the minor prophets and um, finding some of the, they'd had a class in college about that and they were kind of excited about it. So I thought, good idea. So the minor prophets, a collection of uh, smaller prophetical writings following Daniel in the Old Testament. Now they're not minor because they're less important than the major prophets, they're minor because their books are shorter. And when somebody decided to call the sections of the Bible something, they said, well, let's call the long ones the major prophets and we'll call the little sharp ones the minor prophets. So that's the only thing. They're not as long as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. They're the long ones. So I decided to focus um, on the prophet Micah. You might want to start hunting for him <laughs> as I speak here. Uh, use your index. or He's right after Jonah. So if you can find Jonah, he's right there among the latter books listed in the Old Testament there. It's important to me that we not lose sight of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is harder reading than the New. Jewish thought is a more distant form uh, from our own than the Greek style of the New Testament. The poetry can be off-putting to some people. The culture is less familiar to us. The references are more obscure and sometimes require more research. That's why I'll bet when you read through the Old Testament you use your notes if you have a study Bible more often than you do in the New Testament. But I like to spend time in the Old Testament so you will be more comfortable with it. And once you spend time with the style of writing, it will be easier for you to handle that on your own as you do your own reading and your own study in the Old Testament. Every book uh, in the Bible has a setting. And the minor prophets, the major prophets spend some time with the history of the events going on. The minor prophets don't do that so much. They're just the prophetic words that went to these men you have to kind of plug them back into the history in the historical books of the Old Testament, and we'll be doing that as we work our way along here. So the, the books themselves are pretty much just the prophetic word. And if you start reading, you go, well, what's going on? Well, there's a context to all of this. In fact, the first verse of Micah helps us find the historical context for these prophecies that he gives. In the first verse it says, The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. There's a lot of information in verse 1. A lot of information. The place, um, Micah of Moresheth, he came from a village about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem in the Egyptian direction. If you're thinking of a map very near the Philistine border, in the time, it says, in the days of Jotham... Ahaz and Hezekiah. That gives us a lot of detail about exactly where he fits into the historical scheme of the Old Testament. That would be during the reign of these three Judean kings. Roughly the same period Isaiah was prophesying. For those of you that were around when we went through Isaiah, Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. Both prophets to the southern kingdom, both living the same time. But Isaiah was an uh, An internal man he had access to the inside of what was going on he was a a court person he was a man of influence so he spoke his prophecies in the presence of kings and uh, very high people Micah was a little bit more on the outside being sort of a country boy but his prophecies are no less valid and no less true because God's word came to both of these men in equal measure so these guys were both doing their own part in that time a very important time in the history of Israel You will recall that after Solomon, the nation of Israel was split in two. You had uh, the southern portion with Jerusalem in it called Judah because Judah was the great tribe of the southern portion and that was pretty much all there was, Judah and Benjamin of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom generally was referred to as Israel. So Judah and Israel and of course the ten tribes we talk about being a part of the northern kingdom. So Judah and Benjamin in the south The ten tribes, the other tribes being the northern kingdom, basically. You will recall um, that these three Judean kings, um, if you read your Old Testament a lot, you'll know who these guys were. Hezekiah was a great reformer, but the men before him, the man right before him, Ahaz, was a monster. (laughs) And the man right before him, Jotham, was sort of a halfway kind of a guy. These Judean kings reigned from about 740 B.C. to about 690 B.C., these three reigns. So Micah is prophesying right in the middle of that period. The subject, verse 1 tells us, of the prophecies, it says concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria is the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. And of course, Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. This is a book about God dealing with corruption in prominent places. Capitals corruption and moral failure often comes from the top in a society. Because the people with power think they can get away with whatever because they have power and influence. And the example they set eventually filters down to other well, Why do we have to be good if they're being so bad? Why should I be honest if they're corrupt, right? That whole thing. People of prominence set the tone. It is where common eyes look to, even in our culture, where we claim this democratic equality, well, the president is more important than I am. Of course, in the ancient world, kings were, to people, way more important than the rulers and the nobles of the land. But even today, we might not look to presidents and those people so much for our... But we have our own stars and idols. We even call them that, right? American Idol, you know? We want to create idols for ourselves. Well, Micah is all about idols and prominence. Leaders can inspire virtue and fidelity or live in such a mockery of virtue that all restraint among the populace is lost. That was true then, and that is true today. It doesn't take a genius to see how led around by the nose people are, by the style and behavior of prominent people celebrity even the word celebrity suggests that these people are a cause of celebration and we idolize them and an even greater price is paid for those who lead people down the wrong path it's bad enough to walk in the wrong ways but for those who lead in bad ways their responsibility before God is very great very great something they don't understand Samaria and Jerusalem, two capitals, enemies, but with the same background, sort of like our North and South War, people with basically the same culture, the same language, the same religion, and they're at war with one another. They hate one another. All children of Israel, all of them, their ancestors had passed through the Red Sea. They all possessed the law of Moses, the true God, the law of God. And both capitals are guilty largely of the same sorts of sins. In Israel, the northern kingdom, Samaria, it was all bad all the time in terms of their leadership. That nation had no good rulers, none. In the southern kingdom, Judah in the south, where Jerusalem was the capital, it was a struggle. Mostly wicked rulers but some bright spots along the way where someone would come along that actually cared about what God thought about things and would try to change things. And some efforts were made at reform. But as one can see from Old Testament history, short-term reforms are not enough. Now, from our best reckoning, Micah prophesied from about 738 B.C. to about 698 B.C., based on his prophetic words here, so a major event in Old Testament history happened in the middle of his ministry and his life. You know what that, that was? Anybody know what that was? The big event? 722 B.C. The northern kingdom ceased to be swept away by the great power of Assyria. The fall of Israel, 722. Snatched away into captivity by the Assyrian people who were among the most brutal, vicious conquerors in the history of the world. They were known in ancient times, a brutal time itself, as the brutal people, the savage people. They would conquer a a land, they would capture as many people as they could, they'd cut their heads off, take their skulls and make giant piles of skulls out in front of the next city they were going to take. Better bend to our will... This is what we did to the last population. That's the kind of people they were. So when we see Micah prophesying against Samaria, Israel, in this book, it is only a few short years before the fulfillment of all that came to pass. And he tried to warn them, as many of the prophets of that day did. So Judah receives a similar message, but they lasted another hundred years or so before the Babylonians came, and same thing, took them all away but they lasted a little longer because they had a few good kings that reformed it long enough that God stayed his hand. So all of these prophecies were given before 722 B.C. that we see in Micah here. And made, he made God's warnings and promises very clear. So there are essentially three prophecies in this book. Each one begins with a call to hear. Verse 2, Hear, O peoples. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Hear now. Chapter 6, verse 1, here now, that begin those expressions begin each section of the book. So, chapters 1 and 2 is one prophecy, chapters 3 through 5 is the second prophecy, and chapters 6 and 7 is the third prophecy. And each prophecy follows kind of a similar pattern. Each one begins with a rebuke for sin, that is followed by an announcement of judgment, and then graciously, there is a promise in each of the uh, prophecies some level of promise about the Messiah and his blessing that is yet future to give hope to a people that are going to need it. So now let's begin at the beginning of the first prophecy, which is a call to all peoples. Hear, O peoples, we're in verse 2, all of you, listen, O earth and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple... For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. So first Micah calls upon the nations of the earth to be witnesses of what God is going to do. That third line there, it says, And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The you is Samaria and Jerusalem. Okay, this is a little bit confusing because of the way they had to try to take Hebrew grammar and turn it into English because the U where it says "hero O peoples all of you that's actually them in Hebrew but it doesn't make sense the way that, for English so they made it, that into a U so that's a them when it gets to you he's talking about Judea and Samaria Jerusalem and Samaria okay so it says "hero O peoples all of them bear witness and let the Lord be a witness against you who's the prophecy directed to Jerusalem and Samaria so the U there is Jerusalem and Samaria. Everybody understand that? No. Okay, good. Brad, you understand it. Good. That's good enough. Brad understands. I'm happy. <laughs> okay. So he is calling the peoples to witness the Lord bearing witness against Samaria and Jerusalem. So, it says the Lord from his holy temple. Notice the emphasis on God's holiness. The point is God is the Holy One, the All-Knowing. He is seeing exactly what is going on. You know, people try to push it out of their minds or just kind of like pretend it's not there, but God sees everything. We sang this morning about the thoughts and intentions of the heart, God's seeing. God knows that. That's right out of the Bible, that God knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows the motives of your heart. He knows every thought in your head. He sees all of it behind closed doors, secret deals, quiet activities, even thoughts. People think nothing is happening so he must not see. That's exactly the where the people in Israel were. Nothing's happening. We're doing our evil and nothing's happening. So, either he's not there or he doesn't see or he's not as holy as we people say he is and Everything's going to be okay. So they continue on and on and on. But he sees. He sees. And when it is time to express his displeasure, he will act. That's what he's saying. And when he acts, look out. Verse 3, Behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split like wax before the fire, like water poured down a steep place. And that is simply the image of great and awesome power. This language is fairly typical in the poetic style to describe calamitous, powerful intervention by God into human affairs. God is moving to pay out his justice. So, when you read a history of Israel, you know, an observer looking at it from a historical point of view of what happened might just quite accurately describe it as an observer that, well, here's a little country and it got swallowed up by a big country. Assyria gobbles up Israel and later Babylon munches on Judah. That's just history. But God ordained those events to happen. If you were here when we were in Isaiah, it even says that God like whistled to distant Babylon to come, to the Assyrians to come and to pay out his own people, using a worse people to punish his people who knew better for their sin. God ordained it. The blessedness or wretchedness of the people in these lands is directly related to God's sovereign will. It is not chance. These are covenant people in covenant with God for their condition as a people. And God is coming, Micah says, to change their condition dramatically. Why? Verse 5. All this is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Now, Jacob and Israel here are both speaking of the northern kingdom. That's his focus at first. They are synonymous terms in the style of Hebrew poetic couplets. Verse 5, those of you that have been with me studying Hebrew poetry, what kind of synonymous parallelism is this? Right, That's it's synonymous parallelism. We used to say, we used to assign, you guys remember that? Assign the what kind of you know Hebrew is written in usually two lines every two lines is a poetic thing sometimes three lines and the second line the way it relates to the first line in Hebrew poetry has some kind of meaning to it there's different styles of writing this is synonymous parallelism all this is for the rebellion of Jacob Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel Israel's is the same as Jacob it's the same thing so it's just saying it over again in the same way now Micah is going after Jerusalem in Judah as well. But first, he focuses on Samaria, Israel, and from there, he's going to criticize his own people in Jerusalem. But he starts with Samaria because they're about to go. So you see how he does this, the way verse 5 is structured. The first two lines are about the northern kingdom Israel, whose capital is Samaria all this for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Then he asks two questions, one to each kingdom. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, the capital? And then he says, the southern kingdom, what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? And notice the parallel between rebellion when he talks of Samaria and high places when he talks of Jerusalem, a high place, Acton has a lot of high places. And Acton is somewhat geographically sort of like Israel in certain ways. If If we lived in Israel in the time of Micah, when you looked up on a hill, you wouldn't see a guy building a big house up there. You would see a religious structure of some kind up there. Idols would be up there. Carved stone, carved wood, votive offerings, decorated places little tiny structures for gods to be housed in in Israel that's what you'd see on the high places that's where people would go up to worship because it's nearer the high places nearer the gods or whatever very pagan way of looking at it the high places that is rebellion of the worst sort idolatry And Micah is saying that the capitals of both countries are the seats of corruption. Even when Judah had good kings, it specifically says in the histories very few of them did anything about the high places. They just stayed there. Each of the kings of Judah and Israel, when you read the historical books of the Old Testament, Kings and Chronicles, gets this little one-sentence summary when you read about them in the historical books. Roughly speaking, there are three kinds of kings, or three categories. There are the wicked kings, and it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord, which all of the northern kingdom's kings were like that. Most of them came to power by murdering the king before them. It's a really rough place up there. There are fairly good kings. Of them, it says something like, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but... And the butt usually is, usually says he didn't do anything about the high places. That's usually the thing. Then there are good kings who did right in the sight of the Lord and then it usually says who followed in the ways of David because David's whole heart was God. God's and he would never tolerate high places. David was not a perfect man but he did not commit idolatry. Or tolerate idolatry in God's kingdom, in the kingdoms of Israel. So let's go back to those historical books. I'd like to invite you to turn back to 2 Kings during the time of Micah and see what he was prophesying against with a little bit of detail. 2 Kings chapter 15. We'll start with the first king of Judah mentioned in Micah chapter 1, verse 1. Jotham writes, uh, his write-up is fairly brief. He seems to uh, fall into the good king but category. So look at verse 32 of chapter 15. It says, In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, became king. So in the southern kingdom, Jotham becomes king. He was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. He was a builder. What did he fail to do? Take away the high places. That's right. He would not put an end to idolatry in the land, though he himself was not an idolater and tried to attract people to the temple. Now, Jotham is followed by Ahaz. Let's look at chapter 16, verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Amalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel and he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This man was an idolater. A man cannot get more perverted religiously than Ahaz. Canaanite religion was monstrous. It was not unlike some of the practices of Central American civilizations in our part of the world or Nordic religious practices among the Viking types before Christianity came, where horrendous, brutal, vicious human sacrifices were required to earn the gods' favor. Ahaz participated in abominations which here included offering his son to Molech. It doesn't mention that, but that's what it means when it says he caused his son to pass through the fire. Molech was a superheated idol upon which children were burned to death as an offering to the gods. And Ahaz gave his own son to Molech. And he did a lot more. But we'll look more at Ahaz next week because he's a southern king. I want to focus on the northern king right now because the first part of Micah focuses on Samaria. Israel. So let's look at what was going on up there in the northern kingdom. Look at chapter 17. This describes Israel's being carried off into exile, and it tells us why it happened. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, not only as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. They would be piling up skulls outside the city of Samaria for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hawa and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So what they would do is the people that survived the uh, initial strokes, taking the cities or whatever, they'd slaughter people, but the survivors would be carried off into their land and they'd be resettled in another country to be servants of them there. When you take people out of their own land and settle them in another country, they're all disoriented. And they're much less likely to rebel. That's the reason they used to do that in those days. Some countries still do things like that, large countries. But that was the, uh, that's the trick. Pretty bad. Pretty bad stuff. The northern kingdom ceased to exist. And Micah was alive to see what he prophesied about. The word God told him was going to happen. He actually saw it happen. And he knew it would happen. He said it would happen. You, know, you ever wonder what it was like being a prophet and knowing that all these horrors are just around the corner and you plead and you plead and they don't care? That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's like, you know, we have the joke in our culture about the guy walking down the street with a sandwich sign on him saying, you know, the, doom, the, the end is near and all that stuff. I mean, oh, ha, ha, ha. You know. What if they, were, if they were a real prophet? It would happen. It would happen. And that's what happened with the real prophets. They knew exactly what was coming. How heartbreaking No wonder so many of the prophets seem so sad all the time in the Bible because they know, they can see it. Well, we'll be back to 2 Kings 17, but um, let me, at this point, just return to Micah chapter 1. We're going to come back here, so keep a finger in here. Let me relate uh, what he saw God doing to Samaria for her sins and idolatries. So Micah chapter 1, um, verse 6 and 7, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country planting places for a vineyard he's talking about a great city it's going to be a place so leveled to the ground that people will say oh let's put a vineyard there I will pour her stones down into the valley I will lay her bare her foundations all of her idols will be smashed all of her earnings will be burned with fire all of her images I will make desolate for she collected them from a harlot's earnings and to the earnings of a harlot they will return a heap of ruins, a prosperous land completely overthrown. That's what happens when God comes down and brings His justice. A flattened city, a dispossessed people, and verse 7 is most poignant there. Idol worshipers give a lot of care to their idols. You know, they adorn them, they beautify them, and all around them are little tokens and offerings and gifts. And Micah says her idols will be smashed. Smashed God's by crushing a finger with a hammer. (laughs) Don't even even bring that up. All of her earnings will be burned with fire, it says, and all of her images I will make desolate. The beautiful place is a ruined desolation. And the last lines describing a harlot's earnings is commonly a reference to um, the wealth gained by temple prostitutes, but here the prostitutes are the idols and the idolaters themselves and the gifts offered by those who believed that these would benefit them um, carved wood and hewn stones and bringing them little offerings and gifts and money and all that stuff would bring some kind of a blessing that is harlotry because god is supposed to be the husband and israel is supposed to be his bride and they're sleeping around if you will with other gods so any of the benefits or the blessings or the gifts or the votive offerings or the, all of that relationship they had with these other gods is harlotry. It's adultery, spiritually. That's what he's talking about. It was harlotry because Israel was to be God's bride just as the church is called the bride of Christ. So let's go back to 2 Kings 17 and see how it was. Verse 7. Now this came about... Because This came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. And the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns and from watchtower to fortified city. And they set for themselves sacred pillars and Asherim, a, a goddess of fertility and sensuality on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on in all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. And they served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. So the whole thrust of the Mosaic law, the law given to their liberated, rescued forebears, was this, be faithful to the living God. That's the the Ten Commandments. That's the First Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. They were to live for the God of Abraham and reject the ways of the Canaanites who were the people God drove out before them because they were so wicked. And they come into the land and start doing exactly what the Canaanites did. Isn't that crazy? They had been swept away by God's judgment for the very things the Israelites were doing. Well, maybe they forgot. No. Verse 13 Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God, and they rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers and his warnings which he had warned them, and they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. And they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served Baal. And then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, and they practiced divination and enchantments, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. That is just a summary of their sins and worse, it's a description of their hearts. Unbelieving, stubborn, stiff-necked, willfully consumed by vanity and mad, insane, pathetic idolatry. Vanity is an interesting word used to describe these people. It means empty, empty, It means just what it means to us. They chose emptiness over the living God. Don't people do that all the time today? They followed whatever the prevailing culture was doing. We want to be like the surrounding nation. Whatever they're doing, we're going to do that. And that's what people that are supposed to be Christians do so often well the world says this oh I'm going to do that and the world's like that I'm going to to do that I'm going to dress like them I'm going to act like them I'm going to talk like them I'm going to think like them whatever the temper of the times that's what we do they had this marvelous opportunity to be light to glorify God by obedience and all the blessing that God would provide and they threw it away they didn't care chose emptiness. God spare us from that kind of stubbornness. Verse 14 and 15 deserve your attention for this is an Old Testament description of man's nature, his sinful nature, perfectly consistent with the New Testament teaching. But here we have some interesting instructive details. The connection between stubbornness and unbelief in verse 14. Verse 15, two key words, reject and follow. Reject and follow they willingly reject god's ways and they follow vain worldly doomed cultures very deliberate very willful it's like the parable that jesus spoke when the people the king the, the ruler sent his son and the people said we will not have this man to reign over us it's the same pattern we see in many people we know People who know better stubbornly in unbelief they reject and they follow. Reject the Lord follow the world. It's interesting what happened verse 24 says the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuthah and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria. See he takes the Samaritans out and puts them in Persia immediate Media somewhere takes people from there and puts them in Samaria. See He's disorienting somebody else and sticks them in Samaria. He's he's switching peoples around. That's what kings used to do. And it came about, verse 25, at the beginning of their living there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, God sent lions among them and killed some of them. So they come to God's land and live there. They're from pagan cultures. And lions were very plentiful in that part of the world in those days. They're all hunted out now, but they used to be there. And they used to be in America too, actually. But they uh, started eating people and you know after six or seven people get eaten by lions people start asking questions hey something's wrong why are we living here (laughs) so they actually write the king of Assyria and say you know we've got this lion problem and they do something very interesting they spoke to the king of Assyria verse 26 the nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the customs of the god of the land so he has sent lions among them they actually understand this a little bit the local god, that's the way pagans think, we're not worshiping him, so he's sending lions after us. So, the king says, you know what you guys should do is start worshiping him and then the lions will go away. And that's what they do. They add to their mix ceremonies and worship of Jehovah, the God of the Israelites. In verse 30 it says, and the men of Babylon made Succoth-Benath, that's a god. The men of Cuth made Nergal, that's their god. The men of Hamath made Ashima, that's their god. The avits made Nibhaz, their, and Tartak, that's their gods. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. The king wrote them and he said, go get a priest out of the people we took away from there. Bring him back. He'll teach you how to worship Jehovah. Then you can worship Jehovah as long as with other gods. And that's exactly what they did. They went back to where people had been taken away from, found a Samaritan priest, brought him back home and said, teach us how to worship Jehovah and he showed them the ceremonies and stuff and they started doing that as well as burning their children to their own gods that is exactly the practice of the modern world this is tolerance folks you know you got to tolerate all faiths right they're all the same that's exactly what they believe they weren't narrow like wild eyed Christians are like those Bible people they had a broad sense of religion all religions are good we'll worship all the gods burn our children here pray to Jehovah here Very tolerant. Very tolerant. You know what the Romans threw Christians to the lions for? Do you know? Atheism. That was why. They didn't mind us worshiping Christ. It was when we said he's the only way. That's what they threw us in there for. They're atheists. They don't worship our gods. We're willing to worship their God. He's okay. As long as they don't say he's the only one. That's the problem. That's still the problem still why the hatred comes. Crises often draw people back to church, which is a good thing. Nine one one 9-11 raised church attendance because we seek the God who is the God of our forefathers when things go wrong, but not the way he requires, often. See, they had lion problems, so they started worshiping the Lord along with their other gods. But God demands unrestrained allegiance to Him exclusively. Well, that's too narrow. The Ten Commandments? Yes, but don't be too narrow about those Ten Commandments. Just toss the first one or two out of there. Because it's not tolerant. There are many paths. There's Sukkoth-Banath, there's Nergal, there's Ashima, there's Nibhaz, there's Tartak, there's Islam, there's LDS or LSD or whatever those things are. There's... Buddhism, there's Unitarianism, there's everything! And it's all the same because, you know, all paths go to the same place. And on that basis, Jehovah is welcome as one God among many. That's a very modern idea and it's also the people of Micah's day idea. The assumption of this mindset, ancient or modern, is that Jehovah never did author the Ten Commandments or if he did, he was kind of kidding. Never commanded exclusive allegiance. Never... Insisted that he's the only God and he is worthy of all devotion, honor, glory, and praise. Never, he never could have said that. Or if he did, he wasn't serious. Believing that was the doom of the Samaritan. That God is not worthy of all praise, glory, honor, and power. Successful people, they were. Prosperous people, archaeologists tell us they were prosperous. Happy in their vain empty ways until God came down and the mountains melted like wax. And the valleys split and God ordained a great earthly power to take them all away. The problem was that God is God and he is quite serious about the commandments that we easily toss aside. Micah cried out to his people because in Judah it was the same And these occasional outbursts of fidelity and faithfulness from some of these kings, sometimes these little revivals of true faith, did not last. They were not enough. 2 Kings 17, verse 19, it says, Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. Well, next week we'll look at Micah's cry to his own people, because as Micah 1.9 says, It has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people. Let's pray. Father, spare us from idolatrous thoughts, imaginings, motives, beliefs. Assert your own authority, Lord, according to your great will. Let us know you on your throne as you have the right to be, as only you are. Men are so foolish to worship anything other than the great Creator God who made all things and to whom we owe our full allegiance. Father, glorify Yourself in us as we share Your love and Your power and Your holiness in the world of darkness and vanity. In Christ's name we pray, Amen.